questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Almost every week, astronomers announce another discovery of planets around other stars. Nearly every discovery announcement is accompanied by a proclamation by a wise astronomer that this planet leads us ever closer to discovering life beyond the Earth. Are we alone, or do we have company out there? Whatever the answer, knowing it will trigger one of the greatest intellectual challenges in human history, not the least of which will be a theological one for terrestrial religions. Might a great spiritual awakening and revolution lie just ahead of us? Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. And to tell us more, our special guest is David Weintraub, a professor of astronomy at Vanderbilt University, where he directs programs in the communication of science and technology and in scientific computing. He is the 2015 winner of the Klopstick Award from the American Association of Physics Teachers, which recognizes the outstanding communication of the excitement of contemporary physics to the general public. He earned his bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy at Yale in 1980 and his PhD in geophysics and space physics at UCLA in 1989, before he was appointed to the Vanderbilt Astronomy Faculty in 1991. He is an expert in the study of star and planet formation and is the author of three books for popular audiences, including Religions and Extraterrestrial Life, How Will We Deal With It?, which is the focus of tonight's interview. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. Professor David Weintraub joins us directly from Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, Professor Weintraub, and welcome to Veritas. Pleasure to be on the show with you tonight. It's my pleasure. May I call you David? You may, please. Well, before we begin, let me just read this excerpt from Einstein. He actually, it's when he arrived in San Diego on December 31st, 1930. And it goes like this. Were there men, he, uh, he was asked, living elsewhere in the universe? Other beings, perhaps, but not men, he answered. Did science and religion conflict? Not really, he said, though it depends, of course, on your religious views. And that's why we have Professor Weintraub here today. Why did you write this book, David, Religions and Extraterrestrial Life? How will we deal with it? I was intrigued by the fact that my colleagues in astronomy over the last 20 years have become spectacularly successful at detecting planets around other stars. And, of course, their goal is not to detect planets around other stars. The goal is to study the planets around the other stars in the pursuit of information that would tell us whether there's life on any of those planets. The ultimate goal is to find out whether we're alone in the universe. So we have transitioned from a, a period when I was in graduate school 35 years ago. At that point in time, we knew of nine planets orbiting one star in the entire universe. Now, of course, one of those planets is controversial, Pluto, but that's not the subject. Uh, right. 
But at that time, the only planets in the entire universe we knew about were the planets that orbited the sun. And that's not true anymore. We now know of thousands of other planets around other stars. And at the time I began investigating, doing the research for this book about a decade ago, we knew of many hundreds of planets around other stars. And I thought to myself, why are we doing this? What are the consequences of doing this? Because scientists are very good at doing their science. They're not always as good at thinking about the consequences of the science that they're doing. And in this particular case, astronomers are just going about their business, doing what they can do, discovering planets around other stars, but those discoveries have consequences. And I tried to think about what those consequences might be. One of those consequences could be that we would discover life on another planet in which case we would know that we're not alone in the universe. And I thought to myself, what do we do with that information? How do I deal with that information? What's the impact of knowing that? And that's what led me to this book. And we always discuss this on this program, the ramifications of, because I guess the first answer would be there is life. I think, in my opinion, that it's probably going to be microscopic or some kind of a microorganism before they actually give us the big news eventually. But even so, the ramifications, societal and religious, would be enormous. And I'm glad that you're addressing this. Now, almost two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotle argued that Earth was the center of the celestial spheres and therefore of the entire universe. Just So just because he thought Earth was the center of the universe, why does it negate the possibility that the spheres above us could be inhabitable. As understood by Aristotle, which is very different from how the Aristotelian universe was understood by Aristotelians who came after Aristotle. But as understood by Aristotle, the physics of the universe dictated that there were five different kinds of elements, earth, air, fire, and water, down here in the so-called terrestrial realm where we live. And out in the heavens, everything was made of ether. Ether was a perfect substance. And the reason Aristotelians knew it was perfect is because all that stuff in the heavens appeared to go in perfect circles around the earth. And perfect stuff, of course, must move in the perfect uh, shape, which would be a circle, as they thought. So the stuff out there was not made of the stuff we're made of. The stuff out there was made of perfect substances, ether. And that couldn't be living stuff. That was different stuff. And anything made of earth, air, fire, and water, according to the laws of Aristotelian physics, excuse me, had to be down here at earth, at the center of the universe. Because again, according to Aristotle, the universe was infinitely old. And that meant any piece of earth that was somewhere in the universe had had an infinite amount of time to do what it was supposed to do. And what it was supposed to do if it was made of Earth was fall toward the center of the universe. So all of the Earth, all of the earthy stuff in the entire universe had to already be right here at the center. There could be no other Earths. And if there were no other Earths, there couldn't be any other life because life clearly has to be on something like an Earth as understood by an Aristotelian. I'm not an Aristotelian, but I wonder... Did he speculate of life perhaps in another planet within our solar system? No, the other planets in our solar system, as understood by the ancient Greeks 
as understood by anybody who followed Aristotle until the time of Copernicus 500 years ago, the other planets, Earth, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, they were stars. They were wandering stars. They were made of, e of ether just like the other stars in the sky. They just happened to move a little bit every day. But they were not planets the way we think of them as planets. They were moving stars just like the other stars. So can we say who actually debunked, if we, if we can say debunked, Aristotle's theories? Was it Copernicus? Copernicus gave it a kickstart. Copernicus said, of course, that the sun is the center of the universe. The earth orbits the sun. Copernicus couldn't prove that. But Copernicus started the controversy when Johannes Kepler came along and came up with his laws for planetary orbits. That kind of suggested that Kepler was probably right. And when Galileo invented his telescope and looked out and saw that Jupiter had moons that seemed to go around Jupiter and Venus went through phases, which suggested that Venus really did orbit the sun, that was pretty much the nail in the coffin for Aristotle. There was no going back. At that point, Aristotelian physics was dead. It took another half century until Isaac Newton came along to come up with new laws of physics that explain how planets could orbit the sun, how the sun could be the so-called center of the universe. But the combination of Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo really took down Aristotle. Since we're discussing, we actually don't discuss religion per se here, but because the book deals with, with the possibilities, I'm glad to be ask, asking these questions. With the church, the Roman Catholic Church, what do you think really pushed them to go from the geocentric to the heliocentric model? What really compelled them after so many years? Well, it took them several centuries to move in that direction. The problem for the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, is that much of Roman Catholic medieval theology was very closely wedded to Aristotelian concepts. And it was very hard for them to separate their theology from Aristotle's ideas. So when Copernicus, when Galileo said Aristotle's wrong, that seemed to be a, a pretty significant theological threat to the foundation of, of Roman Catholic theology as it had been established by Thomas Aquinas a few hundred years before. So in order to accept the Copernican model as right, in order to say, okay, the earth really does orbit the sun, they had to reach a point at which they no longer felt that that idea was theologically threatening. And it took several hundred years of effort before they evolved uh, to that point. So by the 1820s, they had clearly recognized that the powers that be within the Roman Catholic Church had clearly recognized that science wasn't going to go backwards, that the earth really did orbit the sun, and they had to find a way to accommodate that idea, and they finally did. Did this, correct me if I'm wrong, did this correlate during the time when there's almost a revolution and people were just complaining that the church was not progressive enough, and that's when the observatory finally started in Castel Gandolfo because people really wanted to step outside and see what was above us? No, I don't think it was quite that 
way. I don't think the Roman Catholic Church was subject to that level of controversy at that time. And the Roman Catholic Church had, for many hundreds of years prior to 1820, been very forward-looking in terms of the value of astronomy. So the Collegio Romano in Rome, the observatory at the Collegio Romano in Rome, had been established long before the time of Galileo. And the Roman Catholic astronomers had some important jobs to do. One of the important jobs was to establish the appropriate time for Easter in the spring and to get the calendar right, because the date of Easter is set to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Right. And the vernal equinox is set by astronomy. It's not set by our calendar. And we tend to think the vernal equinox is about March 21st, but that only works right if the calendar is right. So our modern calendar is known as the Gregorian calendar. It was put in place in about 1582 by Roman Catholic astronomers who who fixed the calendar at the request of the Pope, Pope Gregory at the time, who recognized that the calendar, which had a leap year but had effectively too many leap years, was gradually moving out of sync with the time of Easter. Easter was changing from a spring holiday, uh, I believe, into a winter holiday. It might have been the other way around. I'd have to think about that carefully. But it was moving through the calendar. So it was about 11 days off. And what they did is they added 11 days to the calendar so that March 10th became March 21st. They just skipped 11 days. And then they decided that three times out of every 400 years, we'd skip a leap year. And by doing that, they got the calendar much closer to being correct. That was a job that could only be done by astronomers who had very accurate knowledge of the length of the year and the rotation period of the Earth and the movements, the apparent movements of the stars, and they put it all together and they got the calendar right. So the Roman Catholic Church has a long tradition of valuing astronomy. But at the end of the 16th century, they really wanted astronomers to come up with the answer they wanted for the Earth being the center of the universe, the reverse idea, the sun being at the center of the universe. That just was too difficult a change for them to become reconciled too quickly. What about the birth of Jesus, allegedly December 25th? Does it, is there any correlation between that and the winter solstice and their interest in astronomy? No, I don't think so. The date of Jesus's birth was not set at December 25th for several centuries after the time of Jesus. And I don't think anybody actually believes that that was the real date of his birth, but it was effectively set there perhaps to protect early Christians because there was a Roman holiday that was associated with the winter solstice, and perhaps if they celebrated Jesus's birth at about that time, they would be able to hide uh, their celebrations around the celebrations other uh, members of the Roman Empire were enjoying at the time. But I don't think the, the birth of Jesus is at all associated with the winter solstice. 
it's just the time that was set for it. Now, this is a very general question, and we'll dissect each religion, hopefully individually. But from all religions, what are the, in your opinion, the percentages of people who believe in extraterrestrial life? Are there more in one religion than another? There are, although the differences are not extreme. And I'm not going to pretend that I have those numbers in my head and other people have done some surveys. But in general, I'm actually looking in my book because you asked the question and I found the survey page that 44% of Muslims, 37% uh, Jews, Hindu, 36%, Christians, 32% were likely to say, yes, there's life in the universe beyond the earth. Those numbers to me are all fairly similar. I think in the, the survey groups, they're small enough that to claim that 32% is really different from 37% would be pushing it. I think the bottom line is one third to half of everybody seems to think that extraterrestrials exist and half to two thirds of any survey group think the opposite. And there are these small differences between religious groups. I think conservative Christians are a little bit more conservative on this idea. Atheists are probably a little bit more open to the idea of extraterrestrial life and their religious reasons for that. But by and large, most of us statistically are in about the same position. Where do agnostics fall in there? Probably the most open-minded, I guess, to the possibility, I guess. Probably, though I don't think I've seen agnostics in any of these surveys. Atheists, yes, but not agnostics, I don't think. Now, from uh, is the Earth the only location in the universe where life exists or can exist? You discuss that question in the book. Life is the only place in the universe where life exists as far as we know right now. That doesn't mean the Earth is the only place that life exists. We just don't have information, accurate information to tell us about other places in the universe. In fact, even our, our neighbor Mars could have life. We don't know. The moon, our closest neighbor, almost certainly is sterile. It has no atmosphere. It has almost no water. It has no place for life to hide. Uh, Venus almost certainly is completely sterile. It's so hot on the surface of Venus. There's no water on Venus. But there are other places in the solar system where life might exist. Jupiter has some moons. Saturn has some moons where the conditions exist such that life of some sort could perhaps exist, but we have no idea. And in environments around other stars, we have absolutely no idea. All we can do is speculate, but our speculation is rapidly becoming informed by actual scientific data. That's where I think we're in this remarkable transition from a point at which asking the question, is there life elsewhere in the universe, used to be a purely philosophical, speculative question. The best way to answer that question 20 years ago would have been to open a bottle of wine and sit in front of a fireplace and argue with your friends because there was no way of answering the question. But with our planetary probes that are exploring Mars, exploring Saturn, exploring the moons of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, with telescopes that can now study planets around other stars, We're going to change the way we answer that question. We're going to have data that enables us to answer that question. And with data come answers. 
And those answers may surprise us one way or the other, depending on what, how we think the answer, what we think the answer should be. But I think we're going to get an answer to the question pretty soon. As an astronomer, I'm just thinking if we have an observatory here, of course, we have to factor in air particles, pollution, and you name it. We try to look for places, you know, for example, Tucson is a great place. We have great observatories here. But other places, perhaps they have a more difficult time. Now, if we have a, a, a telescope that's orbiting the planet, now compare the, what you get from an image in one of those telescopes that's above us than the ones that we have down here. Is the difference really, really a lot? Yes, but it depends on the kind of telescope. The atmosphere messes up the light from celestial objects quite a bit. It blurs the images. We do have telescopes on the surface of Earth that have special called modern devices. They're called adaptive optics and laser guide stars that enable us to take out a lot of the blurring caused by the atmosphere. So the advantage of being in space is not as large as it used to be. But it's still significant. If an astronomer had a choice between using the same telescope on the surface of the Earth and the same telescope in space, we'd want to use the telescope in space. It's just better because you don't have to look through the atmosphere. And that's in what addition, I'm saying. Yeah. With in addition, the atmosphere not only blurs images, but you're looking through the molecules that are in the Earth's atmosphere that can make it harder to detect the signatures of, mo of molecules in the atmospheres, let's say, of an exoplanet, so that you're not as sensitive to what you're observing on the distant planet if you have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. And that's why I asked the question, because in space, of you know, there's no particles that may obfuscate the lens here. The farther we go, correct me if I'm wrong, the further we go, for some reason, and why is it that we see this, it's almost as these planets, for example, or even stars, they look like they're underwater. You have these waves all the time. What are these? When you look up at the stars and you see that wave emotion or the twinkling of stars, you see that because there are pockets of the Earth's atmosphere that are a little bit denser than other little pockets of the Earth's atmosphere. And the different densities in different parts of the Earth's atmosphere bend the light in the same way that if you put a straw in a glass of water, it looks like the straw is being bent as it goes into mm -hmm. the glass of water. We've all seen that phenomenon. That's light being bent by what a physicist would call it the refractive index of the water. The water just changes the direction the light travels. And it's because the density of water is different from the density of air. So different pockets of the Earth's atmosphere that have different densities bend the light as it's coming from the star. So the light coming down through the atmosphere doesn't follow a straight path. It keeps getting bent back and forth and back and forth and back and forth just by tiny, tiny little bits. But those tiny little bits mean that as you look up at a star, the light, you're see, the light your eye sees this particular moment came from a slightly different direction than the light from that same star as it came through the atmosphere just a moment ago. So it looks like the star is moving around. That's the twinkling or the blurring. 
if you don't have an atmosphere, you don't get that blurring. The stars would be crisp, precise little points of light. That's the big advantage of being above the atmosphere. Now, is it true that if we see, for example, a star that might be, you know, pick one out of Alpha Proxima or Alpha Centauri, if you see one four point some light years away, and let's say that star went supernova, is it true that it would take us four years before we see the implosion and what we're seeing today is no longer what it is? That is absolutely correct. When we look with our telescopes, we're collecting light. And light travels at the speed of light. That sounds kind of silly, but it's what light does. Light can't travel faster than that, which means an object at any distance from us is sending us information, and that information travels at 180, approximately 180,000 miles per second, which means it can't get here instantaneously. It takes a little bit of time. If it's 180,000 miles away from us, it takes one second for the light to get to us. If it's 360,000 miles away from us, it takes two seconds for the light to get to us, which means if you had a flashlight and you were 360,000 miles from me and you turned on the flashlight, the light would need two seconds to get to me. I wouldn't know you'd turned on the flashlight until two seconds after you'd turned it on. That's just the nature of how light works in the universe. So when we talk about a star being four light years away, we're measuring how far away it is. And given the distance to that star, it would take light four years to travel that distance. We're looking back into the past. We're seeing the light today that left that star four years ago. So what you described was absolutely correct. If some star blew up, the information about that explosion would take some time to get to us. It would tr the information would travel at the speed of light. And if that star were four light years away, it would take four years after the explosion before news of the explosion got to us. Let's speculate then. Wouldn't it be better? I, I know that probe I believe we sent in the 1970s that had some things inside. And if we were to send sound to a, a distant star... Wouldn't it be better to send light signals? Wouldn't they be arriving much faster so that we can get a response, say, in eight years, perhaps, as opposed to sound that travels so much, much slower? The, the Voyager spacecraft in the 1970s right. which is still on its way out of the solar system. It has attached to the spacecraft a record, an old you know, 33 RPM record and a needle so that if some other civilization found it, they could play the record. That would be sound. When we talk about radio waves, radio waves are not sound. Radio waves are light. And we're not sending sound through space. Sound actually re requires a, a, a dense medium like the air that we're breathing for the sound waves to travel through. And in interplanetary and interstellar space, the density of material is so low that effectively sound can't travel. There's no sound in outer space. But light can travel without worrying about the medium it's going through. It can go through a vacuum. And radio waves are sound are, are light waves. So when your listeners who are listening to us right now, they're hearing sound. Their ears detect sound waves, but their radio detects radio waves. And the radio converts the radio waves, which are light, into sound. 
So the Voyager spacecraft is not sending sound out to these other uh, stars. It's not sending any waves at all out to those other stars, in fact. But we can communicate with the Voyager. We can send radio waves from Earth more powerfully than we can from the Voyager. Voyager is just a little bit further away from us. But we've been sending messages out to the stars since the birth of the age of radio. So for more than 100 years, as soon as we invented radio, the radio waves sent out through the Earth's atmosphere went out of the atmosphere out into space and have been traveling. So in effect, information about the existence of the Earth has been traveling outwards in a bubble, traveling at the speed of light in the form of radio waves for the last 120 or so years. I hope we're not sending reality TV radio waves. Well, we are. <laughs> Because if that's the case, if they receive it, I hope, you know, maybe they won't, they won't come visit if they, that's what they see. They might be a little discouraged, but maybe they'll get some I Love Lucy reruns and they'll think that's pretty good. There you go. There you go. Now, in space, a vacuum, say the Voyager or any other craft that we may have out there, the vacuum, does it allow the radio wave communication to go as far as, as we can imagine? And how long does it take from point A to point Z? Does it really matter if there's a vacuum? It doesn't. The vacuum makes no difference. The, the vacuum does not affect the propagation of the radio waves through space. The radio waves will travel to the other end of the universe if there's an end to the universe. They'll travel across the entire universe given enough time. And in fact, many of your listeners may have heard of what's called the cosmic background radiation, which are the light waves, the radio waves that were emitted by the universe during the first moments of the history of the universe, when the universe was about 300,000 years old. The universe emitted light in all directions, and that light has been traveling for 13 and a half billion years, and we're still receiving those light signals that have traveled from the other end of the universe. So when we measure the cosmic background radiation, which any astronomer could go out tonight and measure that signal, they're measuring radio waves that have been traveling through the universe for 13 and a half billion years. They just keep on going. And if we don't collect them with our telescopes, they just keep on going. The Big Bang. If the theory is real, are there places in this universe who may be visually witnessing that event as we speak? Well, we're witnessing as we speak. When we look back and collect the light from the Big Bang, we're seeing the universe as it was 13 and a half billion years ago. We are witnessing the Big Bang. Now, formally, we're witnessing an event that occurred 300,000 years after the first moments of the Big Bang. But that's pretty close to the beginning. So it doesn't matter where you were in the universe. If there are intelligent beings anywhere in the universe and they had the ability to use telescopes to detect the cosmic background radiation, they'd all be seeing the same result. They'd all be seeing light from the Big Bang from 13 and a half billion years ago. Anywhere in the universe, they would get that same measurement. Now, I've always wondered this question, at a, but it's not part of your book, but I have since you're an astronomer. When January comes around, we see certain stars, and when June comes around, we're halfway around the sun, we still see more or less the same stars. Why is it that 
we are able to see that if the sun should be blocking our view? Some of the stars we see, we see toward the north, what we call the north celestial pole. Those stars, if we're in the northern hemisphere, we can see all year. They're known as circumpolar stars. Other stars, other constellations, we only see for part of the year. You need to think about the Earth as a spinning top with the rotation axis. And then you have to imagine the Earth orbiting the sun with the rotation axis effectively sticking up perpendicular to its orbit around the sun. One side of the Earth faces the sun. That's the daytime side. The other time faces away from the sun. That's the nighttime side. As we go around the, the sun, the daytime side of the Earth, six months later, is looking in the direction of the, the sky that used to be the nighttime side. So our, our nighttime stars change. But the stars you see looking up toward the North Pole, if you look up above the Earth's rotation axis. In Polaris. Toward Polaris. Those stars are visible all year round at night because of the way the Earth spins. They're just part of it is because the Earth's rotation axis is tilted a little bit with respect to that orbit around the sun. Part of it is simply because that rotation axis is not pointed right at the sun. It's pointed mostly perpendicular to the orbit. So some of the stars down near the celestial equator the constellation Orion, for instance, that one's up for half of the year and gone for half the year. But the Big Dipper is up all year. So it depends on which stars. And then there are other constellations that for us in the north, we never see because they're down near the south celestial pole. And you could only see uh, the Southern Cross, for instance, if you went down to South America or to Africa. Australia. Australia. Interesting. Now, you've seen that image of the Milky Way and you know, people put the little dot and they say, you are here. And people think that's a, that's a, that's a photograph. Who, what kind of equipment went all the way out there to take that photograph? I'm always wondering that. Is that a composite or is that a real image? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a composite. In the same way, there's, some, there's a great selfie taken by the Mars rover. <laughs> right which is a composite of hundreds and hundreds of little pictures of the Mars rover. The only part of it it doesn't have is a picture of the camera that took the selfie images because it can't turn that camera around and look at the camera. Right. But from the Earth, we can take our telescopes and look in all directions and put together a composite image of the entire sky as seen from the Earth. And that composite image is what you're seeing on those T-shirts. Thanks for the clarification. I've always wondered that. Now, going back to Aristotle for a second, he postulated again that no other worlds exist and therefore humanity is alone in the universe. What logic, again, did he use to arrive to this conclusion? The logic is simply that there can be no other Earths. The assumption is that living things must live on things that look like the Earth round planets made of rock and iron and water. That's where living things must live, according to an Aristotelian. And according to the laws of physics, as understood by Aristotle and his followers, 
all of the earth and iron and water, the earth, air, fire and water, all of that stuff was confined to the terrestrial realm where there is the earth. The earth is the only earth. It's self-evident to them. The earth is the only earth almost by definition. Therefore, there can be no other earths out in the heavens. There can't be other earths because they can't be made of earth, air, fire and water. They have to be made of ether, which is this perfect substance. And living things wouldn't live on ether because that's not earth, air, fire and water. The argument is self-consistent. It's also obviously wrong, but it's a self-consistent argument that if you say living things can only live on earths and there's only one earth, then there are no other living things. Now, how did he know about ether? The ether was the ether comes from the idea that when you look up, you can do this tonight. Anybody can do this if their skies are clear. You lay on your back for eight hours and you watch what the sky does. And what you see looking up are that the stars rise in the east and they go overhead and then they set in the west. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. The moon rises in the east and it sets in the west. And it looks like all of the objects in the heavens are moving around the earth. And it looks like they're moving in circles around the earth. And in fact, if you watch those circumpolar stars, the ones near the North Pole, and you took, take a time-lapse movie of the stars going around near the North Pole, it looks like they're all going around in circles. It looks like a phonographic and, record, right? Yes. And the ancient Greeks thought the per circle was the perfect shape. It has no beginning. It has no end. It doesn't change in any way. It's, it's a perfect shape. And the heavens seem to move in perfect circles. That must be it's a good reason to call them the heavens because it's also perfect out there. And again, according to Aristotle's physics, the other stuff in the universe, the earth, air, fire, and water, that doesn't move in circles. If you took a rock and you let go of it, You held it in the air and let go of it. It doesn't move in a circle. It plunges downward toward the ground. And if you have some fire and you watch the little bits of sparks, what do they do? They go upwards. So earth, air, and fire, and water had what Aristotle said were natural motions. And they're natural motions, unforced motions, motions that they would do all by themselves. They either moved downwards or they moved upwards. And earth and water naturally moved downwards, and fire and air naturally moved upwards. And up and down were defined by Aristotelians as toward and away from the center of the universe. And the center of the universe clearly was down below our feet. And the heavens, which moved in circles, they didn't move up or down, had a different kind of motion. Therefore, to Aristotle, the heavenly bodies had to be made of a different substance. So they came up with this name for it, the ether. Ether means to run always, to, to never stop moving. So ether was a different substance, uh, the quintessence, the fifth essence, if you will, that had a different natural motion than earth, air, fire, and water. And that allowed Aristotelians to divide the universe into where we live, the terrestrial realm, and the part of the universe that moves in perfect circles, the celestial realm. And there is no earth, air, fire, and water in the celestial realm because by definition, according to Aristotle's physics, it can't be there. It has to be down there.
And again, this is not part of your book, but I'm curious again, when I think of the Egyptians, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Maya, of all, even the Dogon who who said there's Sirius B over there and people didn't believe him until somebody came at the beginning of last century, I believe, finally confirmed that there was indeed a binary star in, in Sirius. What about these ancient ones and their cosmological views? How do you see their astronomy in comparison to what we have today? All ancient peoples had some kind of astronomy, but it's certainly very, very primitive compared to what we had today. Ancient cultures, every last ancient culture that, let's say, was not living at the equator where the seasons never changed and not living in a tropical forest where they couldn't see the heavens, any other ancient culture learned to survive based on the seasons. They had to figure out the seasons because in the winter it gets cold and you die if you don't plan ahead. And in the winter, there's no food to harvest. So if you haven't planned ahead, you starve. And in the summer, if you don't plan your hunts for the right animals or your harvests for the right berries on the right hills at the right time, you don't collect your food and you starve. So ancient peoples all over the world had to figure out the seasons in order to stay alive. It was a matter of survival. And figuring out the seasons is pretty easy. You can pay attention to how warm it gets and how cold it gets based on the sun. But the sun, once you start paying attention to the sun, you quickly realize that the sun does not always rise in the same place on the horizon. And it doesn't always rise to the same height in the sky at noon. Sometimes it's low on the toward the horizon at noon. And sometimes it's very high near the zenith at noon. And that changes with the seasons. And you can learn to predict the seasons based on where on your horizon the sun rises or sets, the length of shadows at noontime based on how high the sun is at noontime. And once you figure out the seasons based on the sun, you're paying attention to the sky. And then you'll start noticing that the stars, the positions of the stars are correlated with what the sun is doing. And then you discover you can predict the seasons and monitor the passage of the seasons by paying attention to the stars. And that's very helpful because you may go through a series of weeks or months when you can't see the sun because it's cloudy in the daytime, but maybe you can see the stars at nighttime. So having knowledge of both the sun and the stars doubles your ability to monitor the seasons. And you use all of that to figure out the pattern of the seasons and figure out a calendar, and now you're going to survive. Survival was based on the calendar and the seasons, and figuring that out was based on watching the stars and the sun. So ancient peoples all over the world watched the sky and figured out the sky. Some of them focused on different things because they were interested in different things. So the Mayas were very, very interested in Venus. I don't know why, but they were very, very interested in Venus. And ancient Babylonians were very interested in transient phenomena like shooting stars and comets and auroras, but different peoples all over the world paid attention to what was going on in the heavens. But they certainly didn't have anything resembling our ideas in modern astronomy. So I think whereas there's this idea that uh, the Dogon people knew that Sirius B was there, they didn't really know that Sirius B was there, but it was a wonderful bit of speculation. 
that turned out to be right. It turns out that lots of stars have companions. Most stars are double stars. And in fact, if you look carefully at the stars we can see without a telescope, it looks like a lot of stars are double stars. Many of those double stars are just uh, apparent double stars, not true binaries. But the idea that stars have companions, that stars come in pairs quite often, that's an idea that is easy to guess at based on what we can see without telescopes. So some, prim some modern ideas could be guessed at by ancient peoples, but certainly modern astrophysics ideas about uh, the Big Bang, ideas about how stars are born and how stars die, no ancient people has had the ability to come up with those ideas. What's your opinion on this idea that our sun may have a companion that comes every 3,600 years and it just goes around in an elliptical orbit? Do you lend credence to that? No, there's no credence to that. If, if the sun had a companion, we, it would be very, very unlikely that we wouldn't have discovered it by now. Certainly, if it had had a companion in what I would consider a very short orbit of three and a half thousand years, we'd know that. That companion should cause, should generate effects in the planetary part of the solar system that we would notice. That companion should generate effects in how comets come into the inner solar system that we would notice. And there are no obvious effects from a companion star that we have noticed. So if there is a companion star, it has to be incredibly far away and a very, very tiny little star that's so faint it's virtually impossible to detect and such low mass that it doesn't have any effect on any part of the solar system that we can notice. And it must be in a, a fairly circular orbit, not a very elliptical orbit that would keep it very, very far away from the sun. But I is, don't think there's any evidence for it. Is it safe to say that perhaps in the past we've had, let's call them cataclysm, just for lack of a better term, you can fill in the blanks, folks, flooding, whatever. And could we see that in the fossil record, in stones, perhaps ice core samples that could prove that at certain intervals, something happens right here in our Earth neighborhood? And if that's the case, can we use astronomy? to predict when the next one might happen? There has been some work trying to look into that. I don't think any of it holds water, at least not yet. <clears throat> But for instance, when the, the evidence was discovered in 1979 that the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid that struck the Earth, and that evidence appears pretty solid, at least the evidence that a large asteroid struck the Earth 65 or so million years ago, that's very, very strong evidence. When that w evidence was uncovered, geologists began looking for additional evidence in the geological record that might suggest a periodicity to how often extinctions occur. For right. instance. Maybe extinctions occur every 35 million years or every 70 million years or every 150 million years. And there was some very mildly suggestive evidence that lent a little bit of credence to that, but, but the evidence is very, very weak. But in pursuing that evidence, astronomers then began looking for other kinds of evidence that 
would cause those periodic extinctions. For instance, the Earth's orbit in the Milky Way galaxy, the Sun's orbit in the Milky Way galaxy, and the Earth travels where the Sun takes it. The Sun's orbit in the Milky Way galaxy takes it up above what's called the mid-plane of the galaxy and then down below the mid-plane of the galaxy. If you think about, I'm going to give you an, al an analogy, if you think about a picture of Saturn's rings, and then you imagine that Saturn's rings are rings of stars orbiting the center of the Milky Way. So you have a picture in your mind. The, the sun's orbit would take it up through the plane of the rings and then back down through the plane of the rings and then up through the plane of the rings and down through the plane of the rings. And there was some speculation that every time the sun and the earth passed through the mid plane of the Milky Way, where the density of stars is a little bit greater, something would happen on the earth and an extinction event would occur. There's definitely a periodicity to how often the Earth goes up and down through the mid-plane of the galaxy. There's no evidence that that has any effect on what happens on the Earth. But scientists have been looking for those sorts of things. To my knowledge, there's no solid evidence, no evidence that is even close to irrefutable that would support those sort of periodicities. There is no doubt that things could happen beyond the Earth that could affect life on Earth. So, again, the asteroid hitting the Earth and causing extinctions, there's no doubt that was an extraterrestrial event that became a terrestrial event that affected life on the Earth. If, for another example, one, we don't know whether it could have happened or not, but if it did happen, but we know it certainly could happen in principle, if a star that is relatively near the Earth explodes as a supernova, the debris from that supernova and the high energy light, the X-rays, the gamma rays, the particles from that supernova explosion, they would come flying out in all directions, including toward the Earth. And if we were close enough to one of those explosions, the Earth could get sterilized. Now, there's no evidence that over the course of the, the billions of years there's been life on Earth, there's no evidence that that ever happened to the Earth. But it could happen. It could happen. Now, we don't know of any stars that are relatively near the Earth that looks like look they, they're going to explode anytime soon. So nobody's worried about that right now. But in principle, those things could happen so that celestial phenomena could affect life on a planet. And I think it's easier to imagine that if there were life on another planet, some of those planets could be in much more hostile environments than the Earth and the Sun are. So if the star, if the planet where there's life happens to orbit a star that's very close to the center of a galaxy, that's probably a very, very hostile environment for life. It's, it might actually be hard to imagine that life could survive on a planet, on a star, close to the center of a galaxy because there are so many exploding stars in that vicinity, probably those planets would be sterile. And that's actually led to a relatively new idea in astronomy, and that is that there might be zones in galaxies where life could exist and other zones in galaxies where life could not exist. There might be habitable zones in galaxies and uninhabitable zones in galaxies. And we would, by definition, live in a habitable zone in the Milky Way galaxy, in a part of the Milky Way galaxy that is not hostile to life. 
And that, of course, doesn't guarantee that life would come into existence in any of those regions. But it suggests that if we're going to look for life, there are some parts of galaxies where we probably needn't bother because life couldn't exist. We've identified a lot of celestial objects, meteors and asteroids that could threaten our own existence here. And I'm sure that number probably grows with technology. With the advent of quantum computing and and better lenses and telescopes, are there systems around the world that perhaps are not even manned? These telescopes are out there 24-7 pinpointing and detecting more objects that could be threatening to planet Earth as we speak? Absolutely. There are a number of, of telescope projects. I don't have any of their names of them on the tip of my tongue, but there are certainly at least a handful of telescope projects whose purpose is to detect asteroids, especially near-Earth asteroids, asteroids that might eventually cross the path of the Earth and cause a collision with the Earth. None of these telescopes are, as you put it, manned. All of these telescopes are automated. Now, someone has to look at the data, and the data is as we call it, pipeline, so that the data goes through certain automatic Filters. processes so that people are not looking at raw data, people are looking at the process data. And there are even algorithms, artificially intelligent algorithms, that would look at these images of the sky to look for potential asteroids. And if they flag one, that's when the human being gets involved in the analysis. And tries to find the signature of that same object, perhaps in an image from yesterday and the day before. And once an image of that object is found in multiple uh, observations across many different nights, then a human being can calculate the orbit of that object and figure out how close it is to the Earth, when its orbit might come near the Earth, if its orbit might come near the Earth. But all of these projects have to be made uh, efficient to operate without human intervention on a, an hourly or even daily basis. There's just too much data coming in and too much sky to survey for a human being to monitor every step of the process. No, that's what I really meant. I'm, I'm, I presume there's there are computers out there that have an algorithm that say trajectory, you know, speed, size, and percentage of probability to become a threat. And if it goes beyond a certain threshold, then... Humans get involved. Right. And there are protocols in place for discussing what might be found before someone has a press conference to announce it. So if, if someone discovers what they think is an object that looks like it might be on a collision course for Earth in year 2032, they don't immediately hold a press conference. They're, they're protocols. There are committees to look at the data. There are other people who would get involved to decide whether they did their analysis right. Maybe they actually detected the space station. Maybe they detected uh, a screwdriver that was dropped out of the space shuttle at some point. There are a lot of things that could cause, uh, could generate a wrong conclusion. And we don't want to make any announcements that are wrong conclusions. We only want to announce things that are as close to correct as we possibly can. Well, not only if you're wrong, I remember almost 10 years ago, we conducted a, a poll here, and the question was, if you were in charge, say the president of the United States or any other country, 
and you had evidence that a celestial object was approaching a threatened planet at a certain date, would you tell the population, and believe it or not, 50% said yes, and 50% said no. And I asked those who said no, they wouldn't tell, because they said, if this is approaching and we have no way to come to, to, to mitigate it, why even tell the population, you know, years in advance to create social chaos? What do you, what's your take on that? I think that's a reasonable answer. The yes answer is also a reasonable answer, which is probably why you got about 50% on both sides of that question. At the moment, there is nothing we can do. Looking forward, there might be things we can do. Now, most of your listeners probably saw Bruce Willis say here. Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. Okay? That's not the way to do it. Okay? And that almost certainly wouldn't work. That's a good way to get a whole bunch of people killed on the way to the asteroid or even on the launch of the asteroid. But just take a simple example. Let's say we find an Earth, a, a, a near-Earth object, which perhaps might come close to us in 500 years. 500 years is a lot of time. In 500 years, our technology will have developed quite significantly. And even now, one could imagine that if we could identify that that near-Earth object were probably made of stuff like a comet rather than an asteroid, so it's icy rather than rocky, we conceivably could launch one or a whole fleet of spacecraft toward that comet. And we've already demonstrated we know how to land on a comet. The, the European Space Agency had a rendezvous mission with a comet, and they landed a little thing on the comet just a few years ago. So we can do that. So we send spacecraft to rendezvous with the, planet, with the comet, and they land on the comet with solar panels. And those solar panels gradually warm up the comet. And in warming up the comet, they cause the comet to uh, vent gases off into space. And that does two things. One, they, they become jets, which move the comet into a new orbit. And two, they reduce the mass of the comet. Now, you're not going to be able to move the comet much in just a couple of years. And you're not going to be able to vaporize the comet in just a couple of years. But it's not inconceivable that a few generations from now, we would be able to build devices that could, in fact, steer a comet through these kinds of processes into an orbit that would not intercept the Earth, and we could protect ourselves. Now, exactly what we do with an asteroid, that's a little trickier because it's not made of ice, but people are thinking about how we might change the orbits of asteroids. We might launch rockets that could land on the asteroid and then become rockets to push the asteroid around. And that would depend on how big the asteroid is. If the asteroid is as big as the moon, it would be hard to push around. But there are no objects in near-Earth orbits that are anywhere near that, that big. The biggest ones are perhaps a kilometer, a mile across. And the smaller ones, you might imagine that if you could land a rocket on the side of that and fire your rockets continually for 300 years, you very, very, very slowly change the orbit of that object and move it out of an orbit that might collide with the Earth. So given enough time, I think technology will advance and we will have the ability to move asteroids around the solar system. In fact, it's easy to imagine, as the science fiction writers do, 
that within a few hundred years we could be mining asteroids, moving asteroids to the moon to harvest materials and asteroids. If we can do that, we can protect ourselves from near-Earth asteroids that are not coming on a collision course for us next week. Now, if there's an asteroid coming toward us next week, there's nothing we can do with, about it. And then the question, should we tell people yes or no, becomes a, a more philosophical, interesting question. But if it's an object that we detect tomorrow that isn't going to collide with us for decades or, or centuries, then we might, in fact, be able to protect ourselves from it. Interesting, interesting you say that because I've had people send me links to companies that are hiring people to go and mine gold and asteroids where they say, hey, you want something exciting, a great career, you may not come back, but hey, if you're in for the challenge, this is how much you get paid, blah, blah, blah. So this is, this is really happening, isn't it? I haven't seen that one. The idea that you might get paid a lot of money to go somewhere and never come back. That doesn't sound very appealing to me. <laughs> right. The idea that you'd pay me a lot of money to get rich and you'd bring me home again, that might have some appeal. Certainly, we will eventually find asteroids that have a lot of gold in them. You know, folks, a lot. Do, Go ahead. If, if we do, then gold is going to become worthless because well, we'll have lots of gold. Exactly. The, gold this, is valuable because it's rare. Now, there are other materials, other minerals that are going to be much more valuable when we can start harvesting them from asteroids. And right now, which minerals or, or elements we would find most valuable are, we're biased by current technology. So there are certain materials called rare earth elements, which are vital for my cell phone. They're vital for cellular technologies and televisions. And they're hard to find and a lot of them come from China. Exactly. So it would be nice to have another source and if we had a source in an asteroid then we'd have lots more of it and they'd become less expensive and we wouldn't depend on China for them. That's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in 10 years. It's conceivable we could be doing something like that within a few hundred years. Probably not in the lifetime of anybody who's alive right now. So I wouldn't hire onto a company to go mine an asteroid next week. But eventually we're going to do that. And eventually we will find that there are materials out there that will be very, very valuable for whatever it is that our future progeny want to do. And that's something I'd like to continue discussing when we take a break now. The geopolitical ramifications of this, let's say that I'm China and you're the United States and we both pinpointed an asteroid and we have our mission to go there and mine. We're not talking to each other. All of a sudden, we hear that they're planning to do the same. Who has jurisdiction over that asteroid? Is it the, per the first craft to land on it? Well, we'll discuss that when we come back. And also more about religions and extraterrestrials when we come back. The name of the book, Religions and Extraterrestrial Life. How will we deal with it? How can people buy the book, David? How can they buy it? They could go to Amazon they, or they could go to Springer. Uh, Springer is the publisher, so if they Googled Springer and my name, they would probably find the website. They uh, could ask me for an email and I could send them a link. That would work as well. But probably the easiest way to buy any book is to go to Amazon. That is the best source of at least information, and that would provide links to other places. 
probably pretty hard to find in a bookstore. Probably pretty hard to find a bookstore, unfortunately. These days, right. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Professor David Wontrop discussing a very interesting topic that I've always pondered but never had the right person to discuss. This is Mel Fambergas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, Miracle Mineral Solution, Pure Organic Sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.